today we'll start a new series within the series that we're currently involved in. We've been looking at the Psalms over the weeks and this evening we're going to start a series on Psalm 22. The first thing to note about Psalm 22 is that it was written by David. We can see that at the very top of the psalm. Can you see that? To the chief musician upon Agileth, Shehar, a psalm of David. Obviously David was a psalmist. He wrote 73 or more of the 150 psalms. Also, most of you will know that David was the second king of Israel. The first king being Saul and then David. However, what we perhaps fail to appreciate is that David was a prophet. Even though that ought to be obvious by virtue of the fact that his psalms are recorded in God's holy book, the Bible. Also, the New Testament explicitly tells us that David was a prophet. (coughs) Just turning to Acts chapter 2. If you want to turn to that, it's up to you, but... uh, I'm turning to Acts chapter 2, verse 29. Let me read this to you. This is Peter speaking on the day of Pentecost, preaching to the crowds that had assembled in Jerusalem. And verse 29, he says, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and his sepulchre is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. And David spoke about these things as a prophet of God. Even though David wrote many psalms about his own experiences, and we've seen that to be the case in Psalm 5, we looked at Psalm 5, and it was about David fleeing from his son Absalom, But Psalm 22 is not about David. It can't be. Just look, for example, at verses 14 through to 16. Look at verse 14 here in Psalm 22. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. Any ideas whom the prophet David was writing about? We've got no reason to imagine that he was writing about himself, that they pierced his hands and his feet. 
that his bones were out of their joints. This is a description of the Roman execution, crucifixion. And it's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. It points a thousand years ahead to when Jesus was nailed to the cross and lifted up to die for sinners. It's about Jesus. Also, we have words in Psalm 22 that were uttered by the Saviour and fulfilled by him when he was nailed to that wooden cross and lifted up to die, such as in verse 1. Look at verse 1 there. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Therefore, Psalm 22 is prophetic. It is messianic. It is about Jesus, even though it was written a thousand years before the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst men. Broadly speaking, Psalm 22 can be divided up into two parts, where verses 1 through to 21 are about the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then verse 22 to verse 31 are about his exaltation, his glory. With that in mind, those of you who are familiar with Isaiah 53 may well see many similarities as we work our way through Psalm 22. That's one of the first things I realised as I embarked on this new series, the parallels with Isaiah chapter 53, the suffering and the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without further ado, let us seek God's enabling before we look at the first few verses of Psalm 22. Let's pray. Father in heaven, holy God, tucked away here in the Old Testament, a thousand years before Calvary, we see such a clear picture of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do pray, Lord, that with your enabling, that we would at least be able to enter into this suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. Each one of us here, that we would have some kind of appreciation of what went on all those years ago when the Lord Jesus Christ was nailed to that wooden cross, when he was lifted up to die for sinners. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. Let's have a look at um, verse 1. We're going to look at the first three verses tonight. First of all, verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Straight away we are reminded that we stand on holy ground, very holy ground indeed, as we read Psalm 22. When you appreciate that those words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, proceeded from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ as he hung upon a blood-soaked wooden cross. Just look at Mark chapter 15 verses 33 to 34 for the fulfilment of what we read in Psalm 22 verse 1. Reading Mark chapter 15, verse 33. 
And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We see it there in the Gospels, the Lord Jesus Christ crying out in a loud voice those words. Psalm 1 verse 1 must surely be the most solemn verse in the whole Bible. How can we ever even begin to plumb the depths of verse 1 and understand the meaning of Jesus being forsaken by God? Let us at least try to scratch beneath the surface and see what we can understand of those words. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, a good start to this would be to remind ourselves of some fundamental truths, such as Jesus is the eternal Son of God and he is one with the Father. We've seen this time and time again on Sunday mornings in our series in John's Gospel. It's been a recurring theme Jesus emphasising his oneness with his Father. For example, in John chapter 10 and verse 30, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. As such, the forsaking of the incarnate Son of God by his God cannot mean a division and separation of the Godhead. As you look and stare at verse 1, as I've been doing for much of the, uh, the, the week that's just passed, as you stare at verse 1, it ought to become clearer that there never was a division or a separation within the Godhead. By virtue of the fact that even in that cry of utter despair, Jesus still owned God as his God. He said, my God, my God. That is a declaration of his faith in God. Think about it. A genuine faith in God is founded upon a relationship with God. There's no true faith, genuine faith in God without a relationship. You can call God your God as much as you want. But God will only be your God if you are united to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that not right? Think about it. You you Christians in here, you refer to God as your God, and indeed he is your God, and you address him as Father, and that is because Jesus is your Lord and Saviour, and praise God for that. But the relationship is in place for you to call God your God. The Lord Jesus Christ said, my God, my God, and that must surely speak of a very real relationship with his God, even as he was crying out those words. The relationship was in place. Having accepted the truth that we really ought not divide and separate the Godhead in our ignorance, 
There is then an inclination to, to divide and separate the two natures of the Lord Jesus Christ by explaining verse 1 in the following terms. It was the man, Christ Jesus, who was forsaken by God and not the divine Jesus. Have you heard that one before? Or maybe you've said it yourself. It was the man, Christ Jesus. You you acknowledge that it's it's ridiculous to say that the God, Christ Jesus, was forsaken by God, but still you would say the man, Christ Jesus, was forsaken by God. Or something along those lines. But you would have an impossible task of explaining that with the right words. And you know why that is? Because the right words do not exist. And the reason that the right words do not exist is because it is not biblical. That is why you would never find the right words and you'd get, you'd, you'd get in a twist. You'd get tongue-tied trying to explain that one. Because at best... It's absolute nonsense. And at worst, it's a heresy to separate the two natures of the Lord Jesus Christ. The 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith rightly describes Jesus as follows. Two whole, perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. The two natures, distinct natures, were inseparably joined together. And more importantly, in the Bible, the Apostle Paul, when he spoke about the humanity and the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ, he said in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, the following. Concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. There's the Apostle Paul Talking in, in those two verses, speaking about the humanity and the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, Paul again spoke about the two natures of Jesus, saying, In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. What none of the New Testament writers ever spoke about was a separation of the human and the divine natures of Jesus. You won't find it. And we do well to follow suit. Otherwise, well, we're no different to, shall we say, certain Muslims who believe that someone did die on a cross. Not all Muslims believe this, but there are those who believe that someone, a mere man, nothing more than a man, died on that cross. Don't know who he is, but someone, some person, died on a cross. And incidentally, all all Muslims would reject that Jesus is the Son of God. But you'd be no different to them. Once you start dividing and separating the two distinct natures of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
you're the same as those who would say that just a man was crucified at Calvary. Or the Jehovah's Witnesses who believe that while on earth Jesus was a perfect man and nothing more. Before and after his earthly existence, he was and is the, the Archangel Michael. But on the cross, it was a man, yes, a perfect man, who was crucified. But they would certainly reject the idea, or the truth rather, that that man on the cross is God. And you would be no different to those, the JWs. The point is, that it is not good theology to ever think of a separation of the human and divine natures of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it is the religion of the devil. The Bible commentator John Gill succinctly says much the same things as I have been saying. Listen carefully to Gill's comments on Psalm 22 verse 1. Why hast thou forsaken me? which is to be understood, not as if the hypostatical or personal union of the divine and human natures were dissolved or that the one was now separated from the other, for the fullness of the Godhead still dwelt bodily in him. When I look at verse 1 of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I don't know about you, but what amazes me more than anything is that the one who bare away my sins at the cross was and still is the incarnate Son of God and that the blood that flowed from those veins was divine blood. As the Apostle Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he, that is God, purchased with his own blood. What I have been trying to do for the past 25 years every time that I have eaten the bread and drunk the wine at communion services is seek to have a greater appreciation and a greater love for the sinless man who is God, who loved me and who gave himself for me at the cross. Once you start going down that road of saying it was the man Jesus who was forsaken, not the not Jesus who is very God, you, you've really missed it. You've missed what Calvary is all about. So where does that leave us? What are we to make of those words of the crucified Saviour, the man who is God, when he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In what sense was Jesus forsaken by his God? Very profound question, isn't it? An impossible question to answer. Or is it? Is it really? Actually, it's not that difficult to answer. As always, if we take off the blinkers and we don't just parachute in on one verse and look at it in isolation of everything else, the Bible provides the answer. 
And we find that the answer starts in verse 1. Let's have a look at verses 1 and 2 together so we can begin to understand what Jesus meant when he cried out those words. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. There is a sense of anguish in these verses, and what is indisputable is that the anguish that the Jesus, that the anguish that Jesus experienced was very real indeed. For example, just days before his crucifixion, John chapter 12 and verse 27 tells us that Jesus was troubled in his soul. And that would have been because the time had nearly come to pay for the, pay the price for sin at the cross. In that verse, John chapter 12 and verse 27, Jesus acknowledged that that was precisely why he came into the world. He was troubled in his soul and yet he acknowledged that he'd come into the world to die on Calvary's cross. As such, it was in fulfilment of his earthly commission and it was in obedience to his father, his sender, his God that Jesus hung upon that cross. Jesus was being obedient even unto the death of the cross. And just a few days after declaring that he was troubled in his soul, Luke's gospel tells us that in the Garden of Gethsemane, just uh, just before his arrest, Jesus was in agony. His sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And he prayed, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, Not my will, but yours be done. And that prayer was answered in that the the cup was not taken from Jesus, but God's will was done. And we see that to be the case in Psalm 22. Then finally, upon the cross of Calvary, we read in Psalm 22 and verse 1 about the roaring or groaning of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why art thou so far from helping me, and from the words of my roaring, my groaning? Therefore, being troubled in his soul, the agony, the drops of blood, and now the roaring, all of those things must surely convey to us at least something of the unimaginable anguish that the spotless Lamb of God was experiencing in obedience to the will of his God. In Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2, Jesus was crying out to God, his God, but his God was not helping him, neither was he hearing him. In fact, it was the Lord, his God, who laid upon him, laid upon Jesus, the iniquities of all whom he would redeem with his own precious blood. God, his God, 
laid on him the collective iniquities of the whole church. All who would ever believe on Jesus was laid upon Jesus their sins. It pleased the Lord, his God, to bruise him, to put him to grief, to make his soul an offering for sin. I'm trying to explain to you now something of what it meant for Jesus to be forsaken. His God laying upon him your sin if you trust in Jesus. Therefore, forget any ideas that a swap took place at the cross whereby we gave Jesus our sins and he gave us the righteousness of God. At best, that is fanciful thinking because none of us would, of our own volition, part company with our sin. Do not flatter yourself and think that you gave Jesus your sin. No way would that ever happen. As I've said, the Lord laid upon him your iniquity. He laid your sin upon his beloved son. And God has given you his righteousness. All of that was done in accordance with the will of God. I want to emphasize this to you. Everything that we see in Psalm 22 was in accordance with God's good pleasure. His will. And remember that Jesus delighted to do his father's will. Jesus was fully obedient to the will of his God. Verse 3. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest us, the praises of Israel. Here we see in those words, but thou art holy, that when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was a rhetorical question. The question is asked in verse 1, the answer is given to us in verse 3, but thou art holy. Everything that we've considered today, the forsakenness, the anguish of the soul, the agony, the sweating of great drops of blood, his God being pleased to bruise him, all of those things can be explained by the words, but thou art holy. We need to understand that God is of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on iniquity. All of us need to be very clear about one thing, that God is holy. We get people calling themselves Reverend this and Reverend that. People who are just as sinful as you and I are. But we're told in Psalm 111 verse 9, Holy and reverend is his name. That name is reserved for God. Reverend. Holy and reverend is his name. It's not that God could not look upon his own son, but it's our iniquity that God cannot look upon. He'd laid the iniquity, your iniquity, if you're trusting in Jesus, upon his beloved son. Tell me, what do you imagine that God swears by? 
Does he swear by his love? Does God swear by his glory perhaps? Not at all. God swears by his holiness. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? A holy God had laid upon his equally holy son the sin of everyone who would ever receive forgiveness and receive everlasting life. Finally, the angels in heaven, in acknowledgement of the holiness of God, they cover their feet, they cover their eyes in his presence, and they call one to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence by all who are about him. God is holy and he will be surrounded by holiness. With God's enabling grace, may each one of you understand at least something of why it was that the only begotten and beloved Son of God cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And believe that his God laid upon him, not just any old sins, but believing that God, his God, laid upon him your sins. And then worship him, the holy God, Father, Son, Holy God, the Holy Trinity. Worship God in the beauty of holiness as a sinner saved by the amazing grace of God. Amen.